This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Mark Atwood Lawrence to discuss his new book, The End of Ambition, The United States and the Third World in the Vietnam Era. Dr. Lawrence, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, Zeb, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk with you and and talk a little bit about this project I've been working on for a few years. Um, Really appreciate it. Um, I am faculty member in the Department of History here at UT Austin, where I first came way back in 2000 and have been teaching courses on U.S. foreign relations and the history of the Vietnam War, the 1960s, for a couple of decades ever since. Um, so the, the book uh, that we're about to talk about corresponds pretty closely to interests that have been on my mind for a, a good bit of time. And what led you to this specific project? And the the project in question is looking at U.S. foreign policy in the 1960s. And clearly, much of your scholarship is focused on that. But what specifically here is it that you're trying to map? Yeah, so um, a lot of my work to date has focused on the history of the Vietnam War. This is something I had long been interested in um, through earlier stages of my education. I think there was something about being born in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam period that led me to a deep interest in this subject. It was sort of one of those things that was heavy in the air when I was growing up and left me with a desire to really understand it. And it, this, uh, this itch kind of followed me into graduate school and I wound up writing a dissertation, uh, subsequently my first book, about the early stages of American involvement in Vietnam. And then I wrote a broader uh, narrative of the whole American experience in Vietnam. So I had put all this work into studying the Vietnam War, and it's really where my my heart lay, my principal intellectual interests lay. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next after finishing that that, uh, broad narrative of the war, I knew I, I wanted to draw on the knowledge base that I had spent so long building up. But I also had an interest in doing something a little bit different, sort of approaching the history of the Vietnam War from a different angle. And, and of course, as, as you know, that's, that's a difficult situation to be in because the Vietnam War has to be one of the most intensely researched subjects in all of history, certainly in, in American history. I think it probably ranks up with the Civil War in terms of the amount of uh, scholarly attention that it has drawn. Someone once came up with a loose figure of something like 30,000 books, nonfiction books, that is, on the history of the Vietnam War. But it did occur to me that there, there is a question out there 
that um, hadn't been worked on or definitively answered in a satisfactory way. It's kind of a curious omission in, in some ways. Uh, the question that, that increasingly drew me is, what was the effect of the American engagement in Vietnam on broader patterns of American foreign policy making in the, the 1960s? What did the Vietnam War do, to put it simply, to other relationships and other priorities that the United States had in the world? And it seemed to me that the American relationship with Europe during the Vietnam period had been explored pretty satisfactorily. I think there's still more work to be done there. But the big question, I think, that had largely gone unanswered was what was the effect of the war on American relationships in what I'll loosely call the third world, in the newly emerging nations of Latin America, Africa, um, Asia, and, and the Middle East? And um, this was a question that increasingly fascinated me and uh, sat at the heart of the book uh, as I researched it over several years and then um, write it, uh, wrote it in more, in more recent times. So your second chapter, and this is one that I really enjoy in part because it, it deals with a subject around which, especially I, I feel like in, in popular treatment, but even in academic literature, there's so much debate and, and at times mythologizing about Kennedy's foreign policy. And your second chapter, you're really trying to take a hard look at Kennedy. What are sort of the undercurrents that you map out here? Yeah. Um, so the book tries to tell a story of transformation. So in the early 1960s, and, and in some ways coming out of the late 1950s, but especially in that, that in the early 1960s, the Kennedy period, one can see, I think, a striking level of confidence and ambition when it came to thinking about the role that the United States could play in the third world. There was broad recognition within the Kennedy administration that the world was changing in really profound ways. And at the top of the list of those transformations was decolonization, which meant the addition of dozens of new nations in the international community. And by the way, too, along with the formal process of decolonization, there was a corresponding sense among nations that had been independent for many years, for example, in Latin America, that their moment had come to claim a greater role, a, greater, a, a, a more prominent voice in international affairs. So across the third world, there was this, uh, at least in the minds of American foreign policymakers, this mounting challenge of finding a way to engage with these new nations to facilitate their transformation into reliable partners and participants in a functional international order. Uh, you know, where I go over the course of the book is to show how uh, the American outlook on these parts of the world really changed very dramatically. And we'll talk about that, no doubt, in a few minutes. But at the beginning of my story in the Kennedy period, what I try to show is this, this sense of optimism, of confidence, or as I, as I, to use the word that I attach the most importance to, ambition, um, really, really uh, uh, soared high in, in this period. Um, Kennedy and many of his advisors believed that the United States needed to pump resources and political will um, into these parts of the world in order to secure them to American international purposes and uh, to build a new international order um, on, the, 
uh, that would be consistent with American geopolitical purposes. What I try to demonstrate, though, is that the Kennedy administration, for all of the talk about ambition and optimism and moving boldly forward into a new era of international affairs, really didn't have a clear blueprint for how to accomplish this. There was substantial debate and disagreement within the administration, just as there was more broadly um, within American society, about how exactly to achieve this, um, this, this renovated American foreign policy that would have a beneficial effect in the third world. So the, the, the portrait I ultimately paint of the Kennedy administration is a, a complicated one, a portrait of soaring ambition and certainly soaring rhetoric about the need to play a more active and constructive role in the third world, but at the same time, a lack of specific plans and overarching ideas about how to achieve this, this effect in the third world. And one of the points I try to make as I, as I move chronologically through the 1960s is that this, this lack of specific plans, this, this lack of specificity with regard to what instruments of American power applied in what ways would achieve this uh, set of objectives really had consequences because as political circumstances changed, um, both domestically and internationally, that lack of specificity led to a relatively quick and, and, and easy crumbling of, some, of much of that ambition that had soared so high at the beginning of the decade. And then your third chapter moves on to Lyndon Johnson, who assumes the presidency in 1963. And Johnson, I mean, is such a tremendous political character to begin with, but also I think you make the case that differs from Kennedy in a number of important ways. You outline some of that for us. Exactly. So my story, as I mentioned before, is a story of transformation. Um, this, this optimism and ambition that's so striking at the beginning part of the decade gives way to something very different by the end of the decade and certainly by the early 1970s. I see LBJ as a transitional figure, the figure who really presides over much of this, of this transformation, or to put it differently, the loss of a lot of that ambition and confidence that was so so much in the air at the beginning of the 1960s. And I think this happens, this transformation happens during LBJ's presidency for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is the particular outlook that LBJ himself brought to the presidency. I think, and I'm following some other scholars here uh, a little bit in my, in my work, um, I see Kennedy as someone who is a relatively nuanced and, and complex thinker about the profound processes of socioeconomic change that were playing out in the third world. He really believed that the United States needed to use its resources to promote change at the grassroots level in order to demonstrate to ordinary people throughout large swaths of the world that democracy and market capitalism and so forth um, had uh, the potential to deliver real benefits to people in those parts of the world. I think LBJ, by contrast, was much more simple in his thinking about what was uh, fundamentally going on in, in the world. He saw geopolitics much more as a matter of 
engaging with other leaders, solving problems at a very elite level. He didn't think or uh, certainly he didn't, um, he didn't dwell on um, the, the kind of socioeconomic conditions that prevailed out in uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America, nearly to the extent that Kennedy and his advisors did. Now, there's a little bit of um, irony here because, of course, in the domestic context, LBJ was really locked in on the social conditions of uh, ordinary Americans. And it's out of that awareness that grows the great society focused as it was on poverty and racial equity, on educational opportunity and so forth. But in the international arena, it seems to me LBJ didn't have that anywhere close to that same degree of, of sophistication. So he saw international affairs in a much more... Um, as a, in a much simpler way, really as a subject for great men operating at the very top of the political systems to uh, regulate, uh, right? He was, he was very focused on meeting with other leaders of other important nations to solve problems. And um, as I say, didn't have the same dedication to fixing problems at at the grassroots level. So in short, there's a, there's a kind of different intellectual tendency that you see in the LBJ period. So it really matters that Kennedy is assassinated in November, 1963 in a very different character with a different set of ideas and priorities with respect to any number of problems, but very much including the third world steps into the white house. And I, I think that these intellectual tendencies are really accentuated over time by um, by shifts within the the domestic political and international environment that you know kind of push LBJ more and more and more in the direction where his own intellectual tendencies were likely to lead him in any case. So I mean, we can get into some detail here if you like, but um, the domestic political um, situation changes, as we all know, very profoundly across the 1960s. A lot of the optimism and ambition connected to domestic reform gives way by the mid part of the 1960s and certainly across 1967, 68, 69 to a new sense of limits. Um, the liberal era of American politics in some ways crumbles uh, in precisely these years. It's a story I think that we know well relatively well, at least in connection with the domestic arena and, and the um, shifts in American electoral politics. But it's a story that we don't know, I think, as well in connection with American behavior internationally. So one of the purposes of my book is to show how this profound shift in um, American political life carries over into the, the international realm. And just as a sort of follow-up, I mean, there's even a difference I think you map out in the way that these different presidents interact with their advisors. Could you explain some of that difference for our listeners? Absolutely. You know, I, I suppose all presidents fall somewhere on a spectrum that is defined at one end by a desire to hear a multiplicity of viewpoints, to encourage debate and disagreements within decision-making circles at the highest levels of government. And at the other end of the spectrum, we might think about a president who wants to be surrounded by a very small number of advisors 
who are operating very much on the same playbook uh, with very little debate or, or discussion. I think that Kennedy was very much toward that, that the end of the spectrum um, of encouraging debate and disagreement. He liked to hear conflicting viewpoints. Um, this is a, a quality of his leadership style that has been remarked on by many, many historians, but also people who worked with JFK during his presidency. And some of them were frankly frustrated by this, right? It was sometimes uh, policymaking was too much a kind of seminar, right? Where people were encouraged to debate and disagree with each other. And sometimes it was difficult to know what the final outcome of these debates was. Well, LBJ, I would suggest, was at the uh, was very close to the other end of the spectrum. He wanted to be surrounded by a small number of advisors who basically shared his outlook. Um, and this is, again, something that historians have seen in LBJ's behavior, but was well uh, and widely noted by people who worked with him um, uh, during his presidency. He prized loyalty. He prized um, consensus. He wanted people around him to basically support the, the decisions that he fundamentally had made in his, his own mind. So very, very different styles. And um, it's interesting you know, to apply this, this kind of scheme to other presidencies. You, know, you might say that Ronald Reagan was more like Kennedy in his willingness and his eagerness, in fact, to encourage debate, whereas someone like George W. Bush was much more like LBJ in that, that desire to hear from only a small number of, of, uh, of advisors. Thank you for that. Now, I want to move on to sort of the, the much promised detail and meat of this, which are the five case studies that you use to chart this transformation. And you have, I would say, comprehensive global breadth here. We look at Latin America, we look at different parts of Asia, Central and Southeast Asia, we look at Africa, and you start in Latin America by looking at Brazil. What characterizes U.S.-Brazilian relations? What's driving them in this period? And what does the transformation sort of reveal? So Brazil, of course, had been a longtime ally of, of the United States, as many Latin American nations were as they gained independence and then um, progressed through you know, the, the early parts of the, the 20th century. But by the late 1950s, early 1960s, Brazil is showing what, from an American standpoint, were very distressing tendencies. Uh, the Brazilian population seemed increasingly inclined to elect left-leaning political leaders, uh, populist figures who um, promised to um, uh, embody distinct and new forms of Brazilian nationalism, who promised to push back against the United States and find a more independent place for Brazil in the international order and pay more attention to, to bolstering the Brazilian economy on its own terms without uh, first and foremost uh, 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 prioritizing the interests of the regional system and ultimately of the United States. So but in the early 1960s, uh, it's easy to see that American policymakers were growing increasingly concerned about Brazil's tendency to spin out of the American orbit. Uh, they worried that over time, Brazil was losing its enthusiasm for its partnership with the United States. And ultimately, if the United States didn't play its cards right, might even uh, adopts neutralist tendencies, or even in the, the most horrifying case, throw in its lot with Cuba or with 
the Soviet Union. And it's by 1963, 1964, you can see no less than the ambassador to Brazil worrying very explicitly about another China happening in Brazil. This may seem rather far-fetched to us with the benefit of hindsight, but it seemed possible at the time that this major, large country, both in terms of population and area, could slip out of its partnership with the United States and fall into the adversarial camp uh, of, of the Cold War. So this was a danger, of course, that Americans were determined to resist. And, and this kind of problem presented the, a crucial and very difficult dilemma for the Kennedy administration. Kennedy, as I mentioned before, wanted to use American power and influence and know-how to kind of work with the, uh, the, the, the newly emerging and in many cases newly restive countries of the third world to uh, cater to their interests, to um, show them that they, their interests ultimately lay with the, with the United States and with the Western side in the Cold War. So Kennedy's impulse, it seems to me, along with many of his advisors, is to manage this difficult situation in Brazil through the proper application of carrots and sticks, foreign aid being the principal carrot, um, hope to kind of keep Brazil in the American orbit um, without something so drastic as a coup that would overthrow the existing political order and bring into power uh, the military or other elements in Brazilian life that would have been perfectly happy to realign the, the, uh, the nation firmly into the pro-American camp. So what I try to track in the book is the ways in which the Kennedy administration really struggled with this problem, right? How to keep this nation that was increasingly showing signs of independence, um, showing signs of uh, resistance to an American-led regional or even global order satisfactorily within the American orbit while allowing at the same time that nations like Brazil should have an increased ability to express themselves in an independent way on the, on the international stage. What I argue in the book is that the Kennedy administration never really resolved this problem. There were Kennedy administration officials by mid and late 1963, just before Kennedy's assassination, who were, who were arguing increasingly that the best course, distasteful though it was, was for the United States to promote a coup in Brazil that would resolve this problem and bring Brazil safely back into the American fold. But there were just as many voices, including JFK himself, who were speaking of the absolute need to maintain democracy and to preserve Brazil as a fundamentally democratic society, even if that meant that there would be a lot of bumps in the road in the short term as this uh, society undergoing rapid social and political change um, flirted with new geopolitical possibilities. So the, the problem, it seems to me, remains fundamentally unsolved by the time of Kennedy's assassination. LBJ steps into office, and I think you can see that very rapidly there's a new American approach to Brazil that's really rooted in some of those intellectual tendencies that I described before in connection with LBJ. The momentum for a coup as the way to solve the problem in Brazil really gathers steam 
in um, in 1960, in early 1964, really the first weeks of the LBJ administration. And it's not by chance that that coup takes place on April Fool's Day, April 1st, 1964, that um, brings the military into power, uh, ousts the uh, left-leaning leader, Joao Goulart, that Americans had had so much difficulty with in the previous months. Now, the coup does not bring the military fully and totally into power at first. There are various kind of middle-of-the-road solutions where the military exerted a lot of influence more or less behind the scenes and the veneer of um, of, of civilian rule was, was preserved. But what I try to chart in much of the chapter about Brazil is the ways in which after 1964 – the military increasingly clamped down and increasingly asserted itself such that by 1967 or 1968, it's certainly fair to speak of Brazil as a, as a military uh, dictatorship. It took a little while to get there. And one of the things that interests me is how it was that Americans came to terms with their support for what became a very ruthless uh, military dictatorship. Uh, a lot of this happens uh, during the LBJ period. Now, your, your next chapter takes a look at India, which had had, especially under Nehru, a sort of complicated relationship with the United States and with Kennedy. What unfolds in, Canada, in India under Johnson? Yeah, the, you know, I think the, the, the first pair of, of countries that I examine in the book um, captures two very different Trajectory. So Brazil was a longtime ally of the United States that seems to be falling out of its partnership with, with Washington. Um, India had been quite distant from the United States across its rather brief history, right? This is a country that had only gained its independence in 1947, but had 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 certainly kept its distance from the United States. The United States famously during um, uh, the, the Eisenhower period had really warmed up to Pakistan, India's rival and in, in some ways enemy. Um, so this was a country in which Americans had seen very little um, in the way of potential for a close partnership across the 1950s. Enter JFK in 1961 and Kennedy as president, just as during his Senate career, really looked to India as a country full of potential, the world's biggest democracy, a country that exerted enormous influence within the emerging third world movement, a nation that commanded a lot of moral force, uh, in, in part because of Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru and other figures who had really embodied the anti-colonial struggle in earlier decades. All of this meant that people around the world looked to India and to Indian leadership for guidance as they confronted their own independence struggles. So JFK looked at India as a really important country, not only because of its size and its population and its geographical position in the world, but also because of the moral force that, that it could exert as it, in some ways kind of the, the quintessential embodiment of the, the anti-colonial spirit that grew up in international affairs after the, the Second World War. So Kennedy wants to open 
a new era of harmonious cooperative relations with India. He's ambitious about India, wants to not abandon Pakistan, but shift the focus of American policy toward Central Asia, increasingly toward India as its, as its top priority. And Kennedy has grand plans and indeed implements at least some of these plans to dramatically increase American aid for India to help with economic development in this country that was desperately poor, but aspired to greater things economically. The United States puts a lot of uh, effort as well into cultivating Indian leaders as political partners and even for a time in 1962 as a geopolitical partner, right, it, it, it's striking that India, um, even in this period of opening to the United States, really insisted on its neutrality, its non-alignment. This was a fundamental tenet of Indian politics in the aftermath of the Second World War. And yet in 1962, India goes to war against China. And in that context, India reaches out to the United States for military aid. And the Kennedy administration is, of course, all too happy to provide that military aid on the theory that this aid not only will defend against you know, a menacing Cold War rival in China, but also will tend to pull India more and more closely uh, toward the United States and help establish a more harmonious uh, partnership in the years going forward. So a lot changes is the bottom line here in 1962, 1963, as Americans put a lot of effort into cultivating India as a new partner um, for the United States. Not as an ally, right? That's going too far. Americans never entertained seriously the idea that they could shake India out of its neutralist or non-aligned sensibilities and, and make it into a new you know, Great Britain or something like that. Hardly. We shouldn't think in those terms. But it was very characteristic of JFK's uh, vision for the third world that he believed that looser kinds of partnerships could be formed on the basis of shared interests and in, in political and geopolitical cooperation. So that's what he was really going for in India. But long story short, it does not work. And uh, for a variety of reasons that I explore in, in depth in the book, um, th this brief heyday of U.S.-Indian warming relations gives way in the middle parts of the decade, uh, particularly after JFK, oh, excuse me, after LBJ steps into office to a much more distant relationship, a frustrated relationship, a relationship, you know, to use the language of the title of my book, in which that, that, that those expressions of ambition on the American side really drop away. And by 1968, or, or certainly by early 1969, Americans had largely given up on the idea that India could be a really crucial part of a rejuvenated American policy towards South, South Asia. And that leads us into the, into the next case study, which is about Iran. And it, it's striking to me here, looking at Iran, you know, the historiography that's out there on Iran in the 1970s emphasizes its status as an important U.S. ally. But going into the 1960s, there's a lot of ambivalence, in fact, about Iran, or at least Iran's leadership under the Shah. So what happens? How do we, how do we move from that ambivalence towards an acceptance of Iran as a U.S. ally? Yeah, you make a great point. I think that the image that a lot of us hold in our heads of the U.S.-Iranian relations uh, relationship 
really speaks to the realities of the 1970s when uh, the relationship between the Shah and the Nixon administration or the United States more generally was sort of rock solid and enormous amounts of economic and especially military aid were flowing to, to Iran. Iran in this period was the principal partner for the United States in, in South and Southwest Asia. But it was, of course, not always so, exactly as you say. In the early 1960s, the relationship between the Shah and the United States was very, very rocky, um, uh, largely because Americans perceived the Shah with some justification as a very weak figure, someone who um, was concerned only with his, um, with his personal power, who was a vain and self-centered leader who enjoyed the trappings of power, but had very little regard for his own people and very little desire or wherewithal to bolster his nation and achieve political and economic advancement. And um, Americans worried as well about political and economic turbulence in Iran. And they feared that, the Shah's regime, wobbly as it was, could potentially be overthrown by these forces of restiveness in, in Iranian society. Whether that would might come from the left in the form of a, uh, a radical movement that entailed the Iranian Communist Party and student movements that were increasingly dissatisfied with the Shah's leadership, or from the right in the form of an increasingly restive clergy and more conservative elements, in, especially in rural parts of Iran, was a subject for debate among American officials. But the bottom line is that nearly every American official who looked carefully at Iran in the early 1960s saw all kinds of potential for upheaval and potentially the overthrow of this very weak character who formerly was allied with the United States, but was widely regarded as a really um, weak and, and unreliable partner. Well, what happens um, in, in Iran during the period that I examine runs a bit in parallel, I suppose you could say, to the Brazil case. This disturbing situation of restiveness and uncertainty gives way over time to a much higher level of American satisfaction that Iran is in safe hands and um, that the United States' interests will be protected uh, in this country and indeed in the region in which Iran sits. Now, in Iran, there was no military coup uh, as there was in Brazil. So there's obviously a very striking diff difference here. But nevertheless, the big story has to do with the consolidation of power in the hands of the Shah. Americans um, uh, sort of swallow their reservations about the Shah and increasingly under LBJ's leadership, throw American economic and especially military support uh, into the Shah's regime in an attempt to bolster him. Initially, he was seen as the least bad alternative. But over time, as I, as I try to chart in some detail, Americans gained confidence that he wasn't just the least bad alternative. He was actually a pretty good alternative. So by 1967 or 1968, LBJ and, and many Americans are increasingly satisfied that um, they've ridden out the storm and that there's good reason to believe that um, a, a partnership with Iran uh, is, um, uh, 
uh, can be relied upon as the cornerstone of American policy, as I say, not just in Iran itself, but in an entire region. So a lot changes between 1962 and let's say 1967 or, or, or so um, that gives Americans confidence uh, in Iranian leadership. And for your fourth case study, you take us to Southeast Asia, but not to Vietnam, of course, because we're trying to understand where else this foreign policy plays out. Nevertheless, events in Indonesia are tremendously violent uh, in this period, and the United States plays a, a complicated role there. What motivates U.S. behavior and what unfolds? So um, Indonesia had been, with lots of interesting variation and twists and turns, um, fairly distant from, if not hostile to the United States since its um, independence in 1949. But Indonesia, nevertheless, was very important to American geostrategists. They understood that Iran was an enormously populous country, uh, that it had enormous natural resources, um, and also that it occupied a very geostrategically important location in, in the world. And on this latter point, I'll make the connection directly to, to Vietnam, right? Uh, Indonesia of my five case studies is the one that was most directly connected to Vietnam. The, the point to make here is that as American concern about an investment in Vietnam grew across the early years of the 1960s, American concern about what was taking place in Indonesia grew um, grew at, at, this, at the same time in ways that were deeply intertwined with American calculations about the region as, as a whole. It simply didn't make sense to a lot of Americans to make this enormous investment in Vietnam if Indonesia, a far more valuable piece of global real estate, was going to be lost to, to the West. So Indonesia really gains a lot of, of importance. Nevertheless, its leadership is quite hostile. To, to the United States and to the West more generally across the early years of, of the 1960s. Americans are, you know, I think in the, in the Kennedy period and even in the first months of the Johnson period, more or less in a position of despair about what to do in Indonesia. This is in, in sharp contrast to Brazil. This is a country that is you know, almost literally on the other side of the world where the United States had exerted very little political or military, or any other kind of influence um, over over the years. Um, so they watch as as Indonesia moves increasingly into a position of hostility to the West, with a kind of sense of helplessness about what can really be done. The only hope that Americans really see is that elements of Indonesian society, including the Indonesian military, were hostile to the increasingly anti-US tone of Indonesian politics, were skeptical of Sukarno, the leader of Indonesia who increasingly warmed up to China across these years, and promised to be a stabilizing force in Indonesian society over the long term. Uh, there were other elements of, of Indonesian societies, Muslim organizations, for example, that stood out as resistant to the leftward drift of Indonesian society. So Americans saw some reason for hope that maybe over time they could work with these elements of Indonesian society and reorient Indonesia and pull it back into the, the Western camp, or at least limit the damage 
of a leftward drift of Indonesian politics. But the stars really align for Americans in 1965 and through a very complicated series of events. Of course, in the fall of that year, there was a coup against um, Sukarno and, and more specifically against the Indonesian Communist Party that dramatically enhances the power and influence of the Indonesian military. So here's a major step forward for American interests. Now, Americans had had encouraged this possibility by pumping resources and goodwill and training into the Indonesian military. But I think it's fair to say that the timing of this coup against the um, ever more left-leaning Indonesian political order was largely out of American hands. So Americans were to some extent quite lucky, uh, uh, as, as many American policymakers would have seen it at least, in the willingness of the Indonesian military to act in 1965. But as with the Brazilian case, what I really try to do in the book is to show how after this dramatic turn in Indonesian politics, Americans went about forming an ever closer partnership with these new sources of political and military stability in Indonesia to solidify the, um, the, the, the possibilities of a new harmonious partnership with um, the authoritarian regime in, in Indonesia. And as in Brazil, Americans had a certain amount of you know, qualms about the authoritarian tendencies of the new order but each time the Indonesian military clamped down and imposed its will a little more strongly, Americans were able to come to terms with that in the interests of their broader geostrategic ambitions and, um, and, and uh, tightened their relationship to some pretty, some pretty tough uh, 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 po- political leaders who um, uh, you know, became quite striking abusers of human rights and certainly ruled through an increasingly iron fist across the 1960s. And for our final case study, and this one was my favorite because this is where my own research dovetails, you take us to Southern Africa and the Rhodesian UDI. How did Johnson behave there? So, um, exactly. So there's a long and complicated backstory here, but in a nutshell, Southern Rhodesia, or what became known simply as Rhodesia and later Zimbabwe, um, remained a part of the British Empire down until the fall of 1965, many months or even years after other parts of the British Empire in Southern Africa had gained their independence. And the reason why Rhodesia remains part of the British Empire for so long is that there is there, there, there was a insoluble problem created by the presence in Rhodesia of a relatively large white population that wanted desperately to hold on to political power in this territory after the na- after Rhodesia became an, an independent nation. So the white population insisted on, on holding power. The British Empire, Brit- Great Britain by this point, was committed to the principle of majority rule. So there was a kind of Great Britain and the leadership of Rhodesia were at loggerheads. In 1960, in November of 1965, Rhodesian white political elites solved this problem through something called the Unilateral Declaration of Independence. They basically asserted unilaterally that Rhodesia was now an independent country. And of course, the political order that emerged in 
this new Rhodesian state was um, one that concentrated political and economic power in white hands, exactly as, as we might have predicted. Now, this poses a real problem for Great Britain, of course, and also for the United States. Um, this is an embarrassment for Great Britain, for the West more generally. This flies in the face of the principle of majority rule and Western claims, and indeed U.S. claims, to be supportive of principles of democracy and fairness and racial equality. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on the United States to push back against the Rhodesians, to undo this unwholesome political arrangement that emerged in the aftermath of the UDI. And yet, at the same time, Americans see something to like in this new political order. There's stability. These white leaders of Rhodesia are diehard anti-communists. They are strong uh, proponents of the Western camp in the Cold War. What I try to show in the chapter is that the Johnson administration across 1966, 1967, flirts with some ideas about relatively ambitious and active steps to make life difficult for the Rhodesian regime and ideally overthrow that regime, create a new political order rooted in uh, uh, racial equality. But at the end of the day, Americans, and here really we're talking about the Johnson period, always back down from those suggestions of relatively bold steps to undo this dangerous and ugly situation. And instead of taking any sort of bold steps, basically line up behind Great Britain, which was working all of, through all of this time to find a compromise solution that would preserve stability in Southern Africa, while also at least putting this territory on the rails towards um, racial uh, equality and, and justice. Americans, in short, decide not to put stick out their necks, not to take any chances, not to take an active role on a part of the world that was increasingly visible as a real eyesore, as an embarrassment to the Western cause in the Cold War. And I think this is really expressive of the Johnson administration's fundamental lack of confidence and ambition that it could use its power and influence on the global stage in anything close to the ways that Americans back at the beginning of the decade had believed they were capable of doing. And the Vietnam War has a great deal to do with that sense of limits, that sense of, um, of, of almost despair that the United States could use its, its power and, and influence. So across these years, long story short, the white regime remains Americans take an increasingly passive role toward all of this and basically permit this, this ugly situation to, to endure in confidence that to undo it would take a major effort that Americans were unwilling to make. Now, before moving on to the conclusion, there was, there's a follow-up I sort of have about this Rhodesian period. Uh, you mentioned the uh, domestic political consensus is also working against Johnson here. And especially on Rhodesia, he actually finds himself being out, sort of outflanked politically. What's happening there and what's the effect? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think of my five case studies, the uh, Rhodesia case is the one where the shifting domestic political situation in the United States has the most importance. 
Um, and, you know, here, I think the, the, the broad context to, to sketch has to do with shifting attitudes within the United States toward the civil rights movements, generally um, toward notions of racial equality and the extent to which the U.S. government should go, whether domestically or internationally, to achieve principles that in the earlier part of the decade had, of course, inspired lots of people to march in the streets and to support um, relatively dramatic change in American uh, life. After 1965 or so, you can see on the basis of American public opinion data, for example, on the basis of political rhetoric and election results, that Americans by and large are losing a lot of their ambitions that they had so uh, forcefully articulated in earlier parts of the decade. Americans are growing fearful of moving too far too fast. Lots of Americans, according to public opinion data, show um, that they, they are worried about things moving too quickly. American, uh, the, uh, the pace of domestic reform, you know, spinning out of control. And I, I think this has direct implications for American policy toward Rhodesia and, and surely toward Africa more generally as well. The Johnson administration simply feels less pressure politically to take uh, what we might call a progressive attitude toward Southern Africa and indeed feels increasingly the resurgence of uh, a political opinion attached to notions of racial hierarchy and segregation um, that's applying pressure, in fact, to go slow and to, to be careful and to prioritize, in many cases, stability over the desire for forward progress. So there's a, there's a quite striking way in which the international story that I'm trying to tell and the domestic story that others have certainly told very well uh, move move in lockstep. Now, having gone through these these case studies, you then draw some conclusions about what this foreign policy turn means, both chronologically as we head into the Nixon years, but more broadly for the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy. Where do you come down? So I think the um, the big point I'm, I'm driving at in the book is that over the course of the 1960s, Americans lose this this ambition, this bold vision that I that I described earlier, and are much more comfortable seeing the world in terms of friends and adversaries. There's a much more sort of black and white vision of of geopolitics than had been uh, prevalent just just a few years before. Right, all of this happens in a very small number of years. The, the third world becomes polarized between nations like General Saharto's Indonesia and the Shah's Iran or Brazil under the generals. These nations, in short, that had tightened their, their bond to the United States during the 1960s. Um, and on the other hand, a country like India, which had grown increasingly distant from the United States. And of course, there are more extreme examples than India of nations that occupied a place of real hostility to the United States, like um, Algeria, for, for example, or, or Cuba. Um, um, and, and I think that um, both of these, b b both parts of this process of polarization worked against American interests over the long term. The adversaries to the United States fomented a lot of anti-American activism that um, caught on right across the 1970s, a period of, of increasingly radical criticism of the United States across much of the globe. And on the other side, 
um, these partnerships with, in many cases, deeply authoritarian regimes um, tended to produce a lot of political discontent in those nations as well, uh, some of which would be focused on the United States over the long term. The United States having been, after all, the nation that was seen as, as playing a key role in bringing an authoritarian political order into power and preserving those nations for, for so long. So when General Suharto's regime uh, fell or the, the Brazilian generals uh, you know, uh, lost power in, in later years, there was, I think, a strong residue of anti-Americanism because of the really quite accurate perception that the United States had been so central to establishing those repressive political orders in, in the first place. So this polarized uh, situation that emerges from the, the 1960s as a consequence of the, the trends that I, I'm trying to write about, I think has very serious consequences over, over the long term. And I think one of the contributions of my book, I hope one of the contributions of my book, is to show that the Vietnam War is a big part of that story. So when we think about the costs and ugly consequences of the Vietnam War, we should add to that list, it's a pretty long list, um, the impact that the war had on the confidence and ambition and boldness of American efforts to uh, lead meaningful political and economic reform um, in a period that stands out as particularly important to the larger history of what we might now call the develop uh, the, the global south. Um, this was, after all, the period in which so many nations gained their independence and argued for a more prominent place in in, in, in international affairs. The failure of the United States to manage that situation in a positive way that produced enduring results, I think, was particularly consequential to what plays out across the 1970s and 1980s, and in some ways down to our own period. Thank you. Now, ha having finished this book, um, I always like to ask authors uh, what they're thinking of working on next or what you might already be working on next. So do you have a project? Well, thanks, Eb. Um, I do. Um, and rather like the one I've just been talking about, my, my idea for my next book emerges from a fundamental interest in the Vietnam War, which I suppose is something that I'll never entirely get away from. But I was, I've been thinking for some time about writing about the ways in which debates over the lessons and legacies of the war overhang American politics and America and the making of American foreign policy in the years after the war came to an end. So across the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and, and I've written a little bit about this. I've, I've spoken about these kinds of subjects and it's very tempting just to go to town on that very question. How did the war overhang American politics and foreign policy decision-making in the seventies and eighties? But I'm also increasingly interested in American political history, and I, I see myself as moving in some ways out of the domain of diplomatic history and into the domain, at least partly, into the domain of American political history. So here's my thought. I want to think a lot about the impacts and debates over 
the Vietnam War and the years after the war came to an end. But I'm going to focus on the uh, mid-1970s, and I think especially the all-important year of 1976, a year of a presidential race, the year of the American bicentennial, um, and do a kind of portrait of that year and write about how the setbacks of Vietnam, of course, in combination with Watergate and other national setbacks, impacted American life. So 1976 is uh, the new focus of my work and something I'm excited about getting started with. Phenomenal. I'll look forward to uh, reading about that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Zeb. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.